Father, we pray that you would guide us to an experience of rightly dividing the word of truth. And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit, when he would come, he would guide us into all truth. And all we pray, Lord, is the words of that song that says, God, be in my head and in my thinking. God, be in my eyes and in my looking. God, be in my mouth and in my speaking. Oh, God, be in my heart and in my understanding. This is our prayer, Lord. And we offer this prayer from our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The gospel from the gospels. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. The first thing I want to talk about is righteousness by faith in the context of discipleship. That there is no such thing as discipleship without righteousness by faith. And unfortunately for many of us, or maybe fortunately I should say, that the, the actual great commission is a commission to go and make disciples. So to understand righteousness by faith is a critical element of understanding how to engage in discipleship. And how discipleship works is what we teach in discipleship. So, are you there with me? Matthew chapter 4. Amen? Okay. I'm just going to pray that you are awake. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. The Bible says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, right here in the midst of this passage, there's something that is actually teaching us about Christ's method. You ever heard that quote, right? Ministry of Healing, page 146, Christ's method alone, right? And do you remember all the steps in that? Right, it says Christ's method alone will, is, will basically give us true success. And he, A, he did what? Mingled among men desiring their good, okay? Two, he sympathized with them. Thirdly, he ministered to their needs. Fourthly, he won their and then he bade them. That is telling you what he did with Peter before he called him here. The result of Christ's method is not baptism. The result of Christ's method is discipleship. It is the beginning of the journey. So he says, you mingled among men desiring their good. You sympathize with them. You minister to their actual needs. You win their confidence and then you bid them to do what? Follow me. Now, I want, you to, I want you to track with me on this. When he calls Peter, he doesn't say, follow me. He says, follow me and. <laughs> the call to discipleship is not just about following Jesus. He says, follow me and I will what? Make you what? Fishers of men. So I want you to understand something right here in the middle of discipleship is the principle of righteousness by faith. He looks at Peter, he looks at James and John, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, he's saying, who is the subject of the verb follow? Who does the following? The one who is being called, right? 
So if you and I are receiving a call from Jesus to be disciples, our primary call is to what? To follow. We are to live a life of imitation. We are to study the steps and the words of Jesus. You see, back in those days when a rabbi would call someone, he had different tests of discipleship. Typically, you would walk up to a rabbi and you would say, you know, I want to be one of your students. And the rabbi would say, okay, quote for me Jeremiah chapter 35. If you can't quote it word for word, because he knows the whole Old Testament, probably from memory. And so he qualifies his students by how much knowledge you have. And then if you got it right, let's say you quoted all of Jeremiah 35 from memory and you did not mess up one time, then he would say these two words to you. Follow me. You can be my disciple. But you see, when he made that call to them, he literally meant follow me. And in some traditions, they suggest that some rabbis literally expected you to walk in their literal physical footprints. You ever been in the snow, right? And when the snow is really high and you want to walk to your car to the road, what do you do? You look for the footprints, right? And you step in the footprints. Now, if you're like really short like Chantal and she's trying to follow my footsteps, right? I have a long stride. So she's going to be, you know, doing these things. You can imagine people walking around Jerusalem trying to follow the rabbi. So here they are like walking where he walks, stop where he stops. And literally, they would say, when it's time for me to sleep, you sleep. When I wake up, you wake up. If I fast, you fast. Because the whole point was, if I'm going to be your disciple, I need you to transmit your life over to me. And in order to transmit your life over to me, I have to literally walk in your actual steps, live your actual life with you, and realize the discipline, the asceticism, the commitment, the fasting, the prayer, everything that he does so that I can also have the same results and power and knowledge that he possesses. Are you with me? So can you imagine that the God of the universe incarnate in Jesus says, follow me? Now you have to step back a moment and recognize that what he's asking me to do, the power is not in me to do it. I tell people all the time this story when I was a kid, right? And you're thinking about the fact that playing basketball and learning anything. I said, listen, if someone, you know, this kid on the playground, he's like a college basketball player. And he's like, hey, Sebastian. I want to teach you, I want you to follow what I do, right? He puts some cones on the court, takes the basketball, dribbles around the cone this way, this way, right? Then does a layup. I'm like, okay, I can't do that. <laughs> He's like, no, I want you to follow what I do. I'm like, I cannot dribble that well. I'm not able to follow what you're doing. So you're asking me to do something for me that's out of my league. And you know what he tells me? He says, listen, all I'm asking you to do is to continue to try, right? And this principle that Sister Y gives us in Ministry of Healing she says, that which at first is difficult when done repeatedly becomes easy. So therefore, the issue is to stick with it no matter what. This would get us out of a lot of devotional ruts. Too many times we give up on a devotion because well, I'm not getting anything out of it. The point is, keep coming. Even if I'm looking at ink on paper, I'm going to still open the Bible and look at the Bible. Because guess what? If I'm going to be bored, if I'm going to be anything out of my mind, if I'm going to be sick, tired, I'd rather be sick, tired, bored in the presence of Jesus. But I just need to stick with it. No matter what. Follow me, Jesus says. But as he looks at Peter and James and John, he realizes that, listen, when you follow me, there's something that needs to happen in your life. The call to discipleship is not just to walk with me and live as I live, do as I do. No, 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 it's not just that. He says, follow me 
And what happens? I will what? I will make. Now, is Jesus going to make them what they already are? Yes or no? No, right? If you're already a fisher of men, he doesn't need to make you what you already are. Are you with me? So the point is, if you can make yourself a fisher of men, you wouldn't be following Jesus. So right here and there, we are now introduced again to the concept of Jesus doing for Peter, James, and John, and Andrew what they did not have the power in themselves to do for themselves. Are you tracking me right now? What is justification by faith? It is the laying into the dust, the what? The glory of men. I'm going to keep repeating this thing until you get it. And? Yes, doing for man that which it is not the power within himself. I just messed up the quote. <laughs> you have it correct. <laughs> so now I can blame it on being tired too. This is what justification by faith is. So right here in discipleship, Jesus is saying, you do the following, I do the making. This is the experience of being a disciple of Christ. I'm not asking you to do any excessive work. I'm just asking you to follow me. You see, when we sit down and we are joined in salvation, we become disciples of Christ. Our number one obsession is just to follow him. Not to learn about him, not to study about, to follow him. That's what I want to do. That is the commitment of my life as a disciple. I just want to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't say, follow my doctrine. He doesn't say, follow my teachings. That's what every other rabbi would tell you. If you follow my teachings, you'll be this, you'll be that. Christ says, I am the very thing that your faith should be in. I am the end of what you are supposed to become. The whole goal is to follow me, not my teachings, who I am. Because you can understand the teachings of Jesus and you accept them and you believe them and you may even teach them. But if you don't practice them, they wrought no change in your life. That is when the truth becomes the truth as it is in Jesus. For many of us, we can understand the Sabbath, but the Sabbath does not transform us. It does not sanctify us. Until we say, okay, I'm going to live out this thing. Do you know how many people know that the seventh day is the Sabbath and are not keeping it? I told this story before when I was um, at the church I was baptized into in Georgia. We're having an AY one time, and this guy was outside yelling in the parking lot. Super tall guy, buff, big afro, right, baby blue suit, yelling outside in the parking lot. People are like, Brother Sebastian, you are a Marine. Can you go see what's going on out there outside the church? So I'm walking out. The elder's kind of trailing me a little bit. It's like, I don't know what this situation is going to be. I'm like, brother, you need to have faith in Christ. Like, <laughs> you know, don't look at what eyes can see, right? Just we need to go out there and see what's going on. So I go out there. I say, excuse me, sir. Can we help you? He starts waving in the hair. Money for the church. Money for the church. I'm like, money for the church? I'm like, can I help you? He says, yeah, I got money for the church. He hands me the money. It's like $25 or something. I'm like. Okay, God bless you, sir. Thank you for giving the money. He's like, yeah, I have money for the church. I said, well, okay, sir, would you like to come inside? He says, no, actually, I'm the pastor of the Baptist church up the street. I said, really? He said, listen, I've known that the seventh day is the Sabbath all my life before I even became a pastor. And he said, recently, I've been having dreams, and Jesus has been coming to me in a dream and saying, if you don't start preaching the Sabbath to your church, you're going to be lost in your whole congregation. 
So he said, then I realized the only Sabbath-keeping church in town was the Seventh-day Adventist church. So I decided to take my money, and I'm going to give it to the church, the true church. This is the Baptist minister telling me in the parking lot of the Seventh-day Adventist church. He comes. I say, listen, man, we can study. I can teach you some things that you can preach to your congregation. We pray together. I get his number. I call the number. It never existed. I'm like, this is crazy. Maybe this was an angel. Beware if you entertain strangers. I don't know. But all I know is when I came back in to preach for that AY, I had to change my message. Because it showed you right there that people know the Sabbath, but they're not living it. And therefore, it doesn't have a transformative power over their lives. He said God was giving him dreams to warn him he needs to preach this truth to his. He says, I've known the truth for 25 years. So it goes to show you people know things that they're not practicing. But the difference between us and them is not the fact that we believe or know different things in terms of knowledge. The difference is I actually surrender to Jesus' command. I actually desire to follow Christ. Because as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I'm doing that because Jesus did that. Too many times we're worried I'm not going to church because I don't like the people, I don't like this. Give me one example of Jesus doing that. Because your focus is not following him, your focus is on yourself. Follow me. Not follow your heart, not follow your cousin, not follow your mom, not follow your pastor. Follow me. We have this saying in entertainment when we used to be in acting. It's called the audience of one. When you get on stage to perform, don't look at the crowd, don't look at that. You're only performing for one person. So whenever we would get up to do acting, I would choose a person in the audience and my whole performance was just for them. Because it made me less stressed to think I'm only performing for you. But as soon as I start thinking, well, there's that person, that person, there's huge eyes all over the room. You start getting nervous, your hands are shaking, sweaty, all this kind of stuff. So therefore, the person would say, listen, you need to live for the audience of one. And right here in the call of discipleship, Jesus is teaching us that in righteousness by faith, it's about living for the audience of one person. I just want to follow Jesus. That's it. Every day of our lives, that should be the number one thing on the to-do list. Follow him. So when someone looks at me and says, you know, Sebastian, I don't like the way your suit is looking. Don't respond the way I was taught to respond. Don't respond and say, look, you shouldn't have said that to me. I'm Jamaican. <laughs> no, that is not an excuse. My goal is not to follow my culture, it's to follow him. My goal is not to follow my, my emotions. My goal is not to follow the general norm of how Canadians do this and how Canadians do that. My goal is to follow him. And his promises, I'm going to do for you what you can never do for yourself. You don't have the power to make yourself. Which of you, by thinking and worrying, can add one cubit to your stature? If you can't add a physical cubit, what makes you think you can add a spiritual one? So Jesus says, follow me, I do the making, you do the following. Stop worrying about, am I growing? Am I doing this? Am I expanding here? Is my knowledge this? We want to have all this minutia to prove that, guess what? I'm advancing in the Christian life. Jesus says, it is my work. I do the making, you do the following. That is discipleship. Peter's number one goal and call was to follow Jesus. And I don't care if you're a seven-day Adventist, seven-day Baptist, Buddhist, whatever it is. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you follow him. 
He does the making, you do the following. And there it is. Laying into the dust the glory of men. Because whatever Peter becomes, what glory could he take to himself? Because the question is, when Peter is there in the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, you judge whether it's right to obey God you know, rather than men, that's your own thing to, de to decide. But as for us, I can only testify of what I have seen and heard. Who made that men? Who did? Jesus. Then you look at John on the island of Patmos, faithful even through boiling pot of oil. How did this man be able to withstand? Who made him? Jesus. And was still making him. Why? Because he followed him. That's why revelation is so powerful. Not so much for all the prophetic sense, but you have to think about the book of Revelation from John's perspective. This was his mentor. This was his God. This was his rabbi, my teacher. This is the one who made me and shaped me as to who I am. I haven't seen him in how many years? 40 years plus, and he's sitting on the island of Patmos alone, and guess who appears to him? Jesus. Jesus appears to him. He heard a voice behind him and he turned and he saw. It was one like the Son of Man. Eyes were like fire. John is saying, I haven't seen Jesus in 40, 50 years. And Jesus says, I have some letters I want you to write. I want you to say unto this church. You think John was complaining? No. Because that's who he always was following. And so, brothers and sisters, if you and I could adopt this principle into our Christian experience, to say, guess what? I'm going to stop focusing on the making. I need to start focusing on the following. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as dear children. Do you know how children learn? You know, the first way a child learns is by imitation. Do you realize that science is now showing that, you know, if your child is born in Montreal, she already starts developing a French accent from the womb just by hearing the mother talk as she's developing? It's crazy stuff. Just from their cry, researchers can show by the way the baby cries what kind of accent it's going to have because it's listening to the mom in the womb. And that the influences upon the child's life, the nurture, doesn't start after they're born or at a certain age of accountability. It started right in the womb. This was the thing that's molding. So guess what? You're looking at Christ, man. You're looking at discipleship. It's the same thing in parenting. So I look at my kid and say, I want to teach you to speak. I want to teach you to clap. What do I do? I clap. So here is Christ saying, listen, I left heaven to come down to serve. Follow me. Why aren't you leaving your heaven, your comfort place? You see me healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, healing all manner of disease. Follow me. You see Christ suffering betrayal from his closest friends. You see Jesus hanging on upon a cross, not resisting the people crucifying him. Follow me. You see Jesus being persecuted by his own church. Do you know the people who killed Jesus were tithe-paying, seventh-day-keeping people? 
Those are the ones that put him on the cross. These brothers were not even just tithing. They were tithing on mint and cumin. You're talking about spices. I just got my cumin. Let me take a tenth of this. This is for the Lord. I'm like, this is on a whole nother level. I know you and I have not tithed. You haven't been tithing on your gardens. People over talking about country living. They're like, I'm going to keep all these cabbages. <laughs> They're not taking a tenth and say, I'm going to bring it to the church. It's the truth. We're keeping all of our garden. But these brothers were so serious. My money, my garden, my spices, everything I earn. Anything I get, I'm going to give a tenth. And these are the brothers putting them on the cross saying, crucify him. These are the ones. Killing the Lord. But in coming to Christ and experiencing discipleship, righteousness by faith is at the very heart of it. You need to study to follow him. And trust he's going to do the making. And in case we get discouraged, the Bible reminds us through the writings of Paul that he that hath begun a good work will complete it. So the the issue is not if he will finish it, because did he start it? Then he'll finish it. He's already proven it twice from creation and redemption. Eventually, six days was over. It is finished. Then you go. Christ is on the cross. It is finished. He's letting you know, even if it took crucifixion, even if it took the wrath of God, even if it took separation from my father, I will keep my promise. How can you and I be discouraged about what Christ will do for us? When there he is saying, I will go through crucifixion, sweat great drops of blood just to keep my promise. It is finished. Jesus finished what he starts. So if he begun in your life, in my life, he will finish it. All you got to do is keep following. <laughs> and if we follow, he will make. If that's clear, let's say amen. amen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. I don't want to get stuck on one story. I did that this morning. <laughs> Matthew chapter 8. The story of the centurion, servant. It says, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is laying at home, lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Sorry, Matthew chapter 8, we began in verse 5, now we're in verse 8. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go and he goes, to another, come and he comes, to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have what? Believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. I want you to look at this story very carefully, right? First of all, why did this man come to Jesus? Because what? His servant was what? Lying at home sick. So he came to Jesus because his servant is lying at home sick. 
So first of all, he valued his, his servant, right? Second of all, he realized that he, there was nothing he could do for his servant. Are you following me? He wasn't coming to Jesus to do for him what he could do for himself. He was coming to Jesus, and every person who comes to Jesus for a miracle is coming to Christ because they believe he can do for them what they can never do for themselves. Are you following me? And not only that, he says, you know what? I will come to your house and I will heal him. And you know what the centurion says? I am not worthy for you to come to my house. So here you have the centurion is not saying, do this for me because I did this thing. When you look at Luke's account, the Bible says the Jews said, oh, Lord, you should do this for this man because he has helped our nation. Oh, so now he's worthy of a miracle of Christ because he was helping and ministering to the Jews? No, that's how they saw him because they had that mindset of righteousness by works. But what he had was a mindset of, I am not worthy, even though everyone else thinks you're worthy. You got to sit down and process this very clearly. The very person in your life and my life that we may think if anyone's going to be saved, if anyone's going to be in heaven, if anyone is living by faith in Christ, it's this person right. He's righteous with God. And the Bible says you may view him one way as worthy when he doesn't see himself that way, which is exactly laid the foundation for his great faith. He came to Christ recognizing, listen, what can I recommend to Jesus for him to do this for me? Just because I helped you build the temple, just because I supported the, the, the Jewish nation, that doesn't make me worthy for his blessing. How could I be worthy for his blessing because I did these things? Those are things I ought to have done. Because if Christ has to do it because I did this, then it is not of faith, right? It is of debt. He owes it to me. I don't know about you, but I don't feel comfortable telling Jesus he owes me anything. But some of us, when we talk about suffering and evil and the problems we're going through, we act as if we are worthy. Just because my grandmother is a Christian and she loves God doesn't mean she's worthy to be healed. Are you understanding what I'm saying? We sit and say, well, why didn't God heal my mom? Why didn't God save my sister in that car accident? How come they died of diabetes at such a young age? And we're looking and say, why didn't God do this? You say, look, were they worthy? We act as if from the very beginning when we come to God as if he owes us something because my grandmother lived a faithful life to Christ for 80 years. Even 80 to 800 will never make us worthy. This was the problem with the prodigal son. He comes back to his father saying, oh, you know, my father has servants. I'm going to come home. And as he's coming, he's preparing his little speech. He's got it in his breast pocket. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be your son. His father stops him in the middle of his speech looks at his son, and why is he stopping him? Because immediately the son doesn't even recognize that, oh, he thinks now because he went out into the world, now because I wasted your inheritance, now because I was out there in riotous living with prostitutes, now I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The point is, you were never worthy. You just now came to realize it. So you wonder why God allows us to go through the gutters of life? To remind us, you were never worthy. But the problem was because we were faithful in evangelism, because we thought we were worthy. And pride goes before a fall. We were never worthy. So many times when I used to do canvassing, people used to say to me, Sebastian, how many books are you praying for? I would look at them, I'd start smiling. I said, I don't pray for books. I pray for experiences. God sells the books. 
they're like, no, nah, no, nah, I mean, I know you're out there, you're, you're hustling, man, you're working hard, you're trying to get these books in these homes, like the leaves of autumn. And I'm looking at them, I said, listen, brother, <laughs> I said, I said, let me tell you something. Do you think I deserve one book? Do I deserve one book? I said, this guy over here, he woke up in the morning in my canvassing program, snuck out of, the, of the, the place we were staying, went to Walmart, stole a CD player, came back home, went to sleep, and went out and sold 25 books that day. I said, do you know why he sold 25 books? Because those souls needed the truth. Had nothing to do with him. God didn't bless him because he was worthy. Are you following what I'm saying? So I said, when I look at him and I see the fact that God is going to give this man 25, 30, 40 books, and this dude is waking up in the morning early to do, the Bible says God hates feet that are swift to do wickedness. But you blessing the one that is swift to do wickedness? And God says, sure is. Sending his reign on the just and on the unjust. But just because God has reigned on you doesn't mean he's affirming your actions. So many times, right, I remember when I was, I was um, doing, uh, preaching a, a small group and these people were being baptized. And so I wasn't there for the baptism because it was at a different church. So as I came later to this, this afternoon program, they picked me up from the train station like, yeah, brother Sebastian, there's a little complications with this situation. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I guess I'll hear about it. So I get there to the house. The pastor is there, which is abnormal. And then all the people that got baptized from the small group that I had spoken at, whatever, they were all there. And so they're like, hey, brother, it's so good to see you, you know, praise the Lord, congratulations, welcome to the family, you know, you do the whole spiel. And as I'm welcoming them into the family, they sent me down and said, well, we have a situation today, the personal ministries leader. She was like, brother, Sebastian, we want to ask you a question. So today, after the baptism, we wanted to celebrate. So we decided to go out to eat at a restaurant. I said, okay. They said, well, we went out to eat, whatever, and um, then while we were there, the son of one of the people who, who was um, hosting the small group was walking with his suit, and the woman stopped him at the other table and said, why are you looking so nice today? And he says, well, today's the seventh-day Sabbath. It's God's day. It's the holy day. She's like, the seventh-day Sabbath? No, the Sabbath is on Sunday. He said, no, it's on Saturday. This is a nine-year-old boy. So she's like, well, where are your parents? So he comes over to the parents she starts talking. Now this woman wants Bible studies on the Sabbath. So they say, see, Brother Sebastian, we didn't take them out to eat on the Sabbath. We would have never met this lady. They said, so what do you think? I said, I'm going to tell you what I think. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's what I think. I said, at the end of the day, just because Joseph became second in command of Egypt because you sold him doesn't justify selling him. Just because you crucified the Lord and he ended up dying for your sins doesn't justify crucifixion. Pilate should have let him go. Are you following what I'm saying? So when we're, when we're, when we're coming there thinking, oh yeah, you were worthy. Listen, I'm looking at these people like, look. You never were worthy. Never are worthy, never will be worthy. And in Revelation, when this question came up and John was weeping, they said, who is worthy to open this book? Even John wasn't worthy. Gabriel wasn't worthy. He's never even sinned. You're like, okay, what about, uh, 
You can give me any name. Daniel, Noah, Joseph. Searching, no one is worthy. Then they said, oh, don't weep, John. For we found one, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy. So if anyone is called the child of God, do you understand the power of this? He says, behold what manner of love that we should be called what? The children of God. Why? Because we're not worthy. The only person worthy to be called a son of God is Jesus. So the very fact that God says, when you pray, I want you to pray, our Father. That should already bring you into a position of humility. Because I'm calling you Father, not because I deserve it, because I'm completely unworthy. The very fact that God would allow you to take his name and let you do the foolishness that you do, already proves to us that God did not pour out his love upon us because we were worthy. He poured out his love upon us to make us worthy. That's what happened. So here comes this centurion coming to Christ and saying, Lord, I'm not even worthy that you should come to my house. Just speak the word only. I want you to pause for a moment about this experience and what it teaches us about righteousness by faith. That as I'm grappling with the gospel in my own life, you know, we like to make demands upon God. We always want God to go beyond his word. We have a problem with that. So we look at him and we say, well, it's not enough that God says you'll be accepted. It's not enough that he says, I will instruct you in the way in which you should go. Lord, can you give me a sign? Lord, can you do this? Lord, can you do that? Here's the centurion says, I'm not even worthy for Jesus to physically come down into my house to heal my son. Just speak the word. But here we think we are worthy for Christ to come down into my life. Manifest himself. I was talking to this atheist girl one time and she was like from China and she was like, well, you know, I don't know if I can ever believe in Christ because she was raised atheist. So I said, what would it take for you to believe in God? You know what she said to me? She said, well, if he appeared in my dorm room, you know, in the walls, like I am Jesus, all this kind of thing. He started knowing like personal secrets about my life and where I grew up and he could speak Mandarin. Then I'd be like, all right, this guy's definitely he's probably God. And I'm looking at this girl like, are you serious? I said, the, the, I said, my shock is not the request. My shock is that you would even think you were worthy of that. Who are you that the God of the universe had come into your dorm room? But we sit there in the audacity and the pride and the arrogance that we think we're worthy of this. And we wonder why when we're praying for God to deliver us, listen, God is not going to take your hand off the remote control. God is not going to come down. And even if he could, we're not worthy. So all I'm saying is, Lord, just give me the word. Just speak the word only because I'm not even worthy for you to manifest a miracle in my life. So if I see God do some supernatural thing in my life, I got to even humble myself like Peter and say, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I'm not even worthy for this. But we're quick to say, Lord, give me a miracle. Give me an experience. The reality is, we're not even worthy. And that is the very foundation of righteousness by faith. God did not make me righteous. He hasn't declared me righteous because of anything I have done, anything I've said, anything I've thought, anything I've accomplished. He's done it because of his great love. Amen. That's it. That's the only reason. That's why I am justified. And in his love, he lays my glory into the dust. 
In his love, he does for me what I could never do for myself. Why else would he do it for us? Who are we in a universe of a billion, billion stars? We are nothing. And yet he has given everything for nothing. That is the love of God. I sit down with people and you say, listen, did he deliver them from Egypt because they were righteous? Oh, look at that holy people in the middle of that Egyptian oppression. No, he did not deliver them because they were keeping the Sabbath and because they were not taking his name in vain and because they were not involved in any idols. Because they, Look, when Moses came there, it already told you the condition of the people. They're fighting against each other. Why are you hitting your brother? You are brethren. Who made you a prince and a divider over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? That was the condition of the people 40 years before he delivered them. And now you say to yourself, these people were worthy for God to come and deliver them from Egypt, from bondage? No. It tells you right then and there, he did not deliver them because they were worthy. There was nothing special about them that he delivered them. He delivered them because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to be faithful to my promise. Even when I look at the nation and I see these people are lacking faith, internal strife, unrighteous, unholy people. And that automatically tells you that before he starts the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. The only God you should have in your life is the one that has delivered you from bondage. You should make up in your mind, I will worship no thing and no one that has not freed me from sin. But right there in the commandments themselves, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of, the, out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I delivered you before I brought you this law. That tells you that I didn't need you to keep the law to deliver you. I'll take that one amen. And so here's the centurion coming to Christ, not worthy to come. He doesn't even want to make any demands. He says, just speak the word the most basic thing you can do. So that means for you and I, when we are grappling with our situation, we say, Lord, look at my addiction, look at my struggle, look at my broken relationship, look at my broken home, look at my broken heart, look at my broken life. I cannot do it. I don't have the power in myself to do this thing. Whenever we find ourselves in a circumstance where we have surpassed ourselves, we need to do what the centurion did. Go to Jesus. And when we go to Jesus, we're expecting him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And yet, all we say is, Lord, I don't want a supernatural miracle. I don't want some fuzzy, warm experience or a floating spirit in my room. I'm coming to you, and I'm just saying, just speak the word only. Righteousness by faith. Lord, I'm not going to think that I'm righteous now. Because I saw this miracle, because I felt this emotional thing in my heart. Just speak the word only. We have to come to a point in our Christian life where we just say, look, brother, all I need is simply the word. That's the point we have to come to. And that is what righteousness by faith is all about. When the Bible says he justifies the ungodly. Just speak the word. That's all I need. justifies 
the ungodly. So you say to yourself, well, I'm ungodly. Brother Sebastian, you don't know how wicked I am. Brother Sebastian, you don't know what I've done. Are you ungodly? Are you wicked? Guess what? This is a saying and worthy of all acceptance, right? That Christ Jesus has come into the world to do what? To save sinners of whom I am chief. You could be the worst one. <laughs> you could be the worst one. And let's just say you are the worst one. Guess what? I came in to save people like you. The, set, the whole plan of salvation was made for you. I didn't come to save the whole. I came to save the sick. Are you following what I'm saying? Christ is like, listen, you think you're so bad. You think you messed up so many times. You think you're failing so often. I made the plan of salvation for you. This is for sinners. That's why Christ Jesus came into the world. And therefore, for you and I, if we want to have great faith that leads to this great experience of righteousness by faith, great faith that appropriates the righteousness of Christ is a faith that says, just speak the word only. Just the word. So therefore, I'm not going to get off my knees when I pray for forgiveness, when I pray that I'm accepted with God, that I'm right with God, and say, well, I feel right with God. I don't need to feel right with God. I don't need to seem like I'm on kilter, that I'm feeling normal again. All I need to know is just what the word says. That is what it means to step out in faith. That means to come to prayer meeting when you don't feel like you should come to prayer meeting. That means to get up and get on the prayer call even when you don't feel like you should be on the prayer call. That's stepping out in faith. Say, brother and sister, how are you doing this week? Look, I'm having a bad week. I'm struggling, but I'm here because he said this. Why are you coming here to church even though you feel lost? You haven't had devotion in like who knows how long because I'm stepping out in faith. He says, if I come to him, he will in no wise cast me out. I'm stepping out in faith. Because all I need is simply the word. So I don't have to sit here and struggle about my mom doesn't accept me. I don't have to struggle with the fact that, oh, you know, my marriage did this. Things are going south. I don't have to struggle with that when the Bible says you are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted. God already accepts you. Why? Because he says it. That's all I need. Nothing else, nothing more, simply the word. I know my time's running out. I have one more passage I'll go to for today. John 8. John 8, beginning in verse 2. Are you there? The Bible says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, <clears throat> they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. 
And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In this passage, the Bible says that we have a woman who is caught in adultery. We already know there's problems with the experience. They brought the woman. They didn't bring the man. They both are supposed to be stoned. So we already see problems with the story. And the Bible already told us they're bringing him to test him. Are you with me? So this is all about the fact that people like to accuse other people. We have the fact that here's this woman, and the reality is she's guilty. She actually committed adultery. Now, granted, right, the spirit of prophecy and other sources suggest that they set her up. That's how they caught her, right? They paid the guy, get a prostitute, whatever, set her up to be an adult, and then caught her. Oh, you're caught in adultery, go to Jesus. They used her as a tactic to try to condemn Christ. Are you with me? The devil does the same thing. <laughs> this whole thing about sin never about you he set you up and as the devil is sitting there in the corner of life he's like listen I set you up for this sin I knew I'm looking and watching and as soon as you fell for it as soon as you went for it boom I'm going to bring it before God and sometimes it even spills out before human eyes we're ashamed we're nervous we're overwhelmed like oh I can't believe people know this I can't handle the fact that people are aware of this I'm so ashamed. I don't want to go to that church anymore. I don't. Why? Because we feel like we're going to be judged. We feel like we're going to be condemned. Do you know what's powerful is the Bible says in the book of Jude that when Michael was contending with Lucifer over the body of Moses, that even then he did not bring a railing accusation against him. Do you understand the implications of that? Even when he was dealing with the devil, he didn't bring any accusation. Because he says, listen, accusation and accusing is the work of the devil. And anybody who engages in that is doing the devil's work for him. He is the accuser of our brethren. And if we accuse our brethren, we are also aligned with Satan. So this whole walking around with suspicion is so profound because when Ellen White's commenting on, John, on Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged. And why don't you take the beam out of your own eye? You know what she comments on that? She says, usually the first one to suspect wrong is the first one guilty. I said, the reason why you're suspecting that person is probably because you're doing the same thing. You know, that person is probably doing this and this. I, I saw them. I said, why would you even think that in your mind? And his whole point is a judgmental spirit is like a beam compared to the lust that you're accusing the person of is a speck. Are you following what I'm saying? And Sister White goes on to say in another place, she says, people who indulge in a judgmental and critical spirit, God can never take them to heaven. Wow. She says, you know why? Because she says, if he were to take them to heaven, they would eventually find fault with Jesus himself. <laughs> so here we are walking around thinking it's okay to have a critical spirit and to accuse. You see, the people who are accusing are the ones who are living by works. All associated together. So as soon as a person goes to a works-based 
approach to righteousness, they start judging other people by their standard of righteousness. Oh, yeah, they're not vegan. I tell people this all the time. You got righteousness by tofu. You got righteousness by this. Oh, no, you eat meat. You definitely you're lost. And if and this is the crazy, I recently preached at a church like this. And people are like, listen, man, you know, sister rolled up in potluck. She was a new Adventist. She brought her plate. Someone said, who brought this thing? Took it off the table and said, this cannot be served. She never came back. Accuser of the brethren. Because when people set up their own standard of righteousness, they want to judge you by their own. And Christ says it's like a beam compared to a speck. You're so focused on the fact that, oh, she has short skirts. He's over there flirting with girls. This person's watching these kind of movies. This person's going to these kind of parties. That whole speck is compared to your judgmental, critical spirit is a beam in your eye. That's the difference in magnitude. So as they bring this woman there, this is not even about the woman. Just like the devil comes in our lives and says, look at all our sins. Look at the temptations we fall into. He's like, I set you up because I'm trying to get to Christ. Then he wants to drag us before God. Have us in our rooms, have us in our basement, have us in our cars, have us in the back of our churches, guilt-ridden, burdened. Feeling like we can do nothing for God, that God can never use us. And this was the devil's plan from the beginning. We thought, oh, you know, Lord, I, I can't eat this. I shouldn't listen to this. We shouldn't do this together. You know, we're not married. All of that stuff, the devil has us focus on this when he's thinking bigger things. He says, my goal is to embarrass God and to constantly accuse him. How can you save this person and kick me out of heaven? How can you justify the ungodly? So as they bring the woman before Christ, then they want to use the Bible. Well, the, Moses said that when we bring, we should stone them. Knowing they set her up, set you up. You know, it's always interesting, right? You're doing something wrong. As soon as you finish doing something wrong, all that conviction and guilt hits you. You know, sometimes it's not even the Holy Spirit. That's the devil. You know, the Bible says this. The Bible says this. Seventy times seven. That's how many times you should forgive your brother. The Bible says he who keeps on sinning is of the devil. First John three, verse eight. So guess what, sister? You keep on sinning. You're of the devil. You people preach that. This is your, you're of the devil. Like, really? So here's the devil wants to throw all this stuff out there and say, Jesus, what do you say? And I like the fact that they ask that question because that's the same question we should ask. When we find ourselves in failure and embarrassment, because guess what? In the eyes of God, every sin that we commit and have ever committed, we were caught in the very act. God is a first eyewitness to every crime against his law. It was never a secret. It was never, it was never covered. David's experience proves that. Here he is thinking, yeah, I got away with this, you know. Joab got me, he's got me covered. Okay, he's killed, I got Bathsheba, everything looks good, kosher. Then Nathan shows up. There was a man that had one sheep. There was a man that had a lot of sheep. As he gives him the whole parable, then he's like, man, that man should die. And he says, oh, you're the man. 
And David realizes, I have sinned. Because guess what? At that point, stop playing games. You've been confronted. And thank God David did. Gave us one of the most beautiful psalms of repentance. What sincere repentance looks like. And that which the Holy Spirit can create in our own hearts. In response to sin. But you see, when we fail God, the question we should ask ourselves is, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? And this is where righteousness by faith confronts us in the media, in our failures, in our struggles. I've shared this testimony many times. You know, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, this is the very thing that helped me to cross the line to become a Christian. Is this truth. And I'm thinking to myself, and I'll finish the testimony in a minute. But as we ask ourselves this question, when I have failed, and I want to know, what does Jesus say? We already started this morning when Adam and Eve failed. When David failed and he says, I have sinned, and he came to the Lord, you know what Nathan told him? The Lord has forgiven your iniquity. He's forgiven you. That's what Jesus says. So right here in this passage, when the woman comes and they're saying, Lord, what do you say? What do you say? Should she be stoned? Should she be this? Jesus says, okay, he without sin cast the first stone. That already deals with the judgment aspect. I'm not going to deal with that right now. But the focus is when Jesus came up, the Bible says in verse 9 that those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left what? Alone. And the woman standing in the midst. You see, when we start talking about our sins and our struggles and the fact that we were caught in the very act of whatever it was and we have failed the Lord, we got to distill it down, get rid of all the accusers, get rid of all the people that you think are going to come to you and say this about you and say, I told you about that relationship. I told you not to go there. I told you not to do this. I told you. You got to remove all those people from your mind. And it just needs to be me and Jesus alone. That's when you're going to hear what Jesus says. That's why she says, listen, we, when we want to come apart and rest a while, she says, we need to hush every other voice. And when every other voice is hushed, and in the quietness of the soul, she says, makes more distinct the voice of God. All the other voices are gone. Now I can hear him. And this is the first thing we need to do as we're struggling in, in our failure. Remove all the people we're worried about, how they're going to look at us, how they're going to judge us. Just you and Jesus alone. And as we're sitting there with Jesus alone, Jesus asks us a question. Woman, where are your accusers? No one. No one. And then Jesus responds and says, neither do I condemn you? And he could condemn you. Because what is the condition of throwing a stone? He who without what? Was Jesus without sin? Yes. So I want you to understand that righteousness by faith teaches us that the one person that could condemn us is the one person that doesn't. <laughs> and everyone who can't condemn us is so quick to try. 
So here I am thinking, listen, laying into the dust the glory of man. I am not condemned because I deserve to not be condemned. I was caught in the very act of what I was doing in my foolishness. You were caught in the very act of what you were doing in your foolishness. And while you were caught in the act, you deserve to be condemned. But the one person who can condemn you says, neither do I condemn you. And why doesn't Jesus condemn us? Because, exactly. Because he knew exactly what he was going to do for that woman. He says, I'm not going to condemn you because I'm condemning myself. So that I, can't, I don't have to condemn you. I condemned myself. I submitted to go through the second death. I submitted to go through this experience of separation from God so that you would never feel it. So I don't care about your lowest days, about your greatest struggles, about your loneliest moments with God. You are not feeling what Jesus felt upon the cross. He went through it so that we would not have to. And as heavy as the guilt, as heavy as the grief may be upon us, it is nothing compared to what he actually went through. He drank the cup, so I don't have to drink that cup. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And the funny thing is, Jesus was never the one that even accused you. Christ never accused you. And he doesn't condemn you. So now you're dealing with the fact that this woman, she could have never delivered herself from that situation. You see, righteousness by works is already shown foolish by the fact that what would this woman try to have say? What, what could she have said to try to get herself out of that situation? Well, you don't understand. I give to the poor. You don't understand. I'm a faithful seventh day. I go to church every Sabbath. I haven't missed one in 60 years. Even when I'm sick, flu, and when I couldn't go physically because I, I tuned in online. What could she have said? That's the attempt of justifying ourselves. Thinking I'm actually going to try to argue my way out of something I was caught in the very act. This woman was over her own glory. She knew she was caught. She knew that she didn't deserve it. To walk away from that alive. She already knew. She, didn't, she knew she didn't walk out of there because of anything worthy in her. Her glory has already been destroyed because she's been exposed. But now Jesus is going to do for her what she can never do for herself, which is to go home justified. Justified. I realize that, you know, in this testimony, you know, that I have as to why righteousness by faith brought me over the line. You know, I remember having this girlfriend, and at the time, I had these messages on righteousness by faith. person gave me the tapes. I was listening to these things. Best thing I ever heard. I started listening to the tapes like five, six times. I had the whole sermon memorized, word for word. I'm like, man, you know, if I have it memorized in my mind, this thing's going to help me live a righteous life. It's going to help me to actually apply this thing. That's what I thought in my brain. So there I was with my girlfriend, and we had already said, you know what? We're going to stop sleeping together. 
We're going to stop sleeping together. Nothing changed. Of course, right, later on, years later, when my spiritual mother's like, how about you just not be alone? Would have solved the problem quite well. But here we are finding ways, do, oh, we're not going to do this, but we're doing it. And eventually, after the third time this happened, I said, you know, Lord, I thought this whole righteousness by faith thing was supposed to, like, you know, cure this thing in the bud. Like, no problem, delivered. I'm good. No struggle. That's not what my experience was. So then my girlfriend says, you know, I'm going to come over on Sunday. I'm like, all right, sure. I'm thinking my family's going to be there. Brothers and sisters, no problem. No risk of sin. Friday comes around. My stepmother's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take the kids. We're going to go to grandma's house for the next week. So it's just you and your dad. But I'm like, okay, I'm still good. My dad's going to be home. So Saturday night, I'm coming home from work. My dad says, hey, continue education, gone. House to yourself. I'm like, man, devil's trying to set me up. So Sunday morning before she comes over, pop that sermon in. This thing is rolling. Five times. I listened to it five times that morning. Over and over. And I'm like, Lord, I'm trying to be faithful, man. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to be faithful. I'm not trying to sin today. She comes over. So this thing is just deep in my mind. I do not want to sin. So she comes over. And she's like, oh, hey, you know, whatever. And at first, right, she's in my room. She's on the floor doing her schoolwork or something. I'm sitting on the bed watching my TV. Then she comes to the bed. Turn off the TV. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to the floor. Then she follows me back to the floor. Then I'm like, okay, I'm going to the next room. So then I go to the next room. Then she comes out to the next room. And I'm like, okay, I'm going upstairs. <laughs> you ain't never seen a brother avoid his girlfriend as much as I was avoiding her that day. So finally, right, I think she got the picture, right? I'm not trying to sin. So she's like, hey, you know what? It's my sister's um, or mother's or somebody's birthday, so she had to go. So I, I jumped up. I was excited. Started packing her stuff for her. <laughs> no problem. Let's go. I'm about to get victory today. <laughs> Start putting all this stuff in there. Packing all her stuff. You've never seen a brother so excited to send his girlfriend. So as I pack all her stuff, then it comes the moment, right? You have to say goodbye. It's like, oh, Lord, right? So you're just like, come on, Lord, just carry me through. I'm not even baptized, mind you. I haven't even decided to keep the Sabbath yet. Haven't even started going to church. Nothing. I mean, I'm still fully in the world. I haven't made any decision. I just started studying. So now, as we're having this interaction, right, of course, we say goodbye. My girlfriend was, like, at the time, like, five feet tall. I'm like, I'm a Marine. You know, nothing's going to happen here. Like, she can't force me to do anything, you know. So, you know, we start hugging, then the hugging's a little long, and all this kind of stuff thing leads onto something else. And I'm like, come on, Sebastian, what are you doing? So before you know it, right, my girlfriend, this stuff is escalating. So I look at my girlfriend, I'm like, listen, you know, this is not right. We shouldn't be doing this, right? Here is the unchristian talking to the Christian. I'm like, we shouldn't be doing this. This is not right. You know what she says to me? She says, well, you know, your dad's not here. Your brother's sister's not here. You know, I know we said we would stop, but how about just this one time? So I have a sermon called Justice One Time. This <laughs> is literally because of that experience. Justice One Time. And so in that immediate moment, right, I'm like, this is like the voice of the devil talking to me through this person. 
just this one time. Right, so we're going back and forth. And of course, right, eventually, you know, my body is succumbing. I'm like, well, maybe I should just do this. Maybe, you know, that one last time. You do this all the time. Playing with ourselves. So by the time you know it, I start talking to myself in my head. And as I'm talking to myself in my head, I'm also pushing this girl back and like, we're going back and forth on this thing. And as I'm thinking in my mind, the sermon comes back to my mind. And the, the preacher in the sermon was like, why do we wait to talk to God after the temptation? Why don't you talk to him right then? So this comes in my mind. So I start talking to God. Stop talking to myself. Because self can't help you. Amen? Amen. <laughs> it's like, stop talking to yourself. Talk to him. So I'm like, Lord, if you don't help me right now, if you don't give me any grace, any power, I'm going to sin. This is what I'm telling God in my mind. This girl is on me. I mean, this is, this, she's like, this is going to happen. So next thing you know, I'm talking to God in my mind, and I hear nothing. I don't even know what to expect. I'm not even a Christian. So next thing you know, I just go silent, and I'm like, Lord, you know what? Maybe this thing is not even real. Maybe I'm just fighting a battle that I'm destined to lose. What's the point of resisting? And so right then in that moment, I was thinking, you know what? I'm just going to yield. What's the point? And it was in that specific moment, all of a sudden, this power comes over my physical body. I'm not even exaggerating. Comes over my physical body, removes all sexual desire from my body and my mind. Start pushing this girl off of me, all these different things. Finally, she stops. She starts crying. Then she's like, I think I have a demon. I'm like, what? <laughs> so we start praying. We're like, <laughs> I'm like, my girlfriend's possessed. <laughs> so we're praying for like an hour, two hours. Then she's like, you know, maybe we should break up. I'm like, you think you're possessed? We for sure should break up. <laughs> it's like, put on Facebook, it's complicated. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's complicated. So I'm thinking to myself, there's no way we can continue this relationship. So we go outside. I walk her to the car. Now here she's thinking, right? She realizes now, like, she's a Christian, right? I'm not a Christian. And she's like, dang, you know, I really messed this up. Like, what if, you know, he was looking to me, you know, for Christianity or whatever? So she asked me right before she gets in the car, she says, are you sure you're okay? You're going to be okay? Like, I said, yeah, I'll be fine. No problem. So she gets in the car. She drives off, came into my house. I was the only one home. There was no one there. Went to my room, sat on my bed, and I said, Christianity is for real. Amen. I'm going to be a Christian. There was no one there. At least no humans. But the Bible says all of heaven rejoices over one. The Bible says that what happened in that moment was that the shepherd had found me stuck in a bush and laid me on his shoulders. And he says, I'm taking you back to the fold. What happened in that moment was I came to myself. And I said, how am I here? My father has servants who have bread enough and to spare. And here I suffer with hunger. I will go to my father. And the Lord didn't wait for me to start keeping the Sabbath. 
He didn't wait for me to start going to church. He didn't wait for me to start reading the Bible. He met me a great way off. Threw about me his arms of love and his robe of righteousness. The rest is history. Here I am today. I am a Christian because of this truth. If it were not real, I would not be here. I'm telling you the truth and God knows. I would not be here. So for us, as we look at this gospel, in the gospels, and we talk about, you do the following. Jesus does the making. We talk about stop demanding from God some supernatural experience because that's not what I prayed for in that moment. I said, Lord, I need something. I'm just trying to be faithful. I'm just trying to be faithful. And I, and I promise you that the one thing I look back on my testimony, whenever I f- reflect on that moment in my Christian experience, it reminds me to say, Sebastian, listen. Those words that Ellen White writes in Acts of the Apostles, that man's extremity is God's opportunity. And many times God doesn't get an opportunity because we haven't gone to the extremity. We need to be at that place where we're in the temptation, we're struggling, the desires are running, the blood is pumping, and we're saying, Lord, I just want to be faithful. I just want to be faithful. Help me to be faithful right now. I'm not worried about all the other temptations that are coming tomorrow. I'm not worried about the temptations of the next hour. In this moment in time, I just want to be faithful right now. And Ellen White says, God will sooner send every angel in heaven before he allows one trembling child of God to be overcome by darkness that trusts in him. Not one. The weakest saint who places their trust in Christ is more powerful than all the hosts of darkness. The weakest. You can know nothing about Christ. And guess what? I didn't know much at that time. Didn't matter because as soon as you put your faith in Christ, he will sooner send every angel in heaven before he lets us be overcome. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Perhaps tonight the Lord has been speaking to your heart. And maybe you're thinking, Lord, I've been trying to do the making. I'm trying to augment Jesus' work. I've been living for the audience of someone else rather than one. Maybe I've been sitting here thinking that I'm worthy of something supernatural when I just need him to speak the word only. I've been depending on, on miracles in my experience. Or maybe like this woman caught in adultery, your life is fraught with shame of what you have done. Constant accusations and speculation. But tonight Jesus is saying, neither do I condemn you. And Jesus will accept you a great way off. And Jesus will help you to be faithful. Right now. It is a day by day experience. So my appeal is very, very specific.
if you right now are fighting a battle similar to what I fought, doesn't necessarily have to be sexual sin or temptation, but you're fighting a battle in the sense that you're saying, Lord, I'm trying to be faithful. And all I'm asking is day by day, give me the grace to be faithful. Help me to just have you speak the word. And I just want to make a commitment to follow you so that you'll do the making. If there's someone that has that kind of struggle raging in their life, and they want to come up front and say, Lord, I'm coming to you right now, just as the centurion came, for you to do for me what I can never do for myself. I want you to come up to this altar. And you say, Lord, I just want to be faithful. I just want to be faithful. You know my situation. You know my struggle. You know my failings. I just want to be faithful. Come, press forward, press forward, make room. We can spread out. Because Jesus doesn't condemn you. <laughs> he doesn't condemn you. And all you need is simply the word. In that immediate, self-same hour, it was done. And all you do when you leave this prayer is you do the following, and Jesus does the making. Your job when you leave this prayer is just to follow Jesus. Live for the audience of one man, the man Christ Jesus. The man who when you fall, he will say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the one we are coming to, and we're asking him, Lord, just help me to be faithful. Just help me. Father in heaven, you see every soul that has come here is a story. They are, they are a story of a raging battle, a battle that they have often lost with battle scars, shame, and fear. Some have fears of being found out. Others have fears that they will never stop. Others have fears that you can't use them because of this struggle. But Father, you told Jairus when things started going from bad to worse, do not be afraid, only believe. And so Father, these have come along with me to cast ourselves upon you. These have come with me so that Father, you can help us to be faithful. And we just want day by day, give us what we need to be faithful today. And we pray the words of that song. That oh for grace to trust him more. And I pray, Father, that as you give victory to every soul here right now, as you show up as the hero in their story, as you show up not only as their savior, but as their Lord and king as you continue to lead them on from victory unto victory. Lord, may their boast be in the Lord. Amen. May their boast be in what Jesus has done. And may they be a walking, living testimony like Lazarus. Doesn't matter what Lazarus eats, it's the fact that he can. 
doesn't matter where Lazarus walks, it's the fact that he can. Because he was dead and he's now alive. So Father, in this experience, I pray that the transformation you work in their lives, this victory, would give them courage to believe that Christ will lead them on to victory, after victory, after victory. And every day their prayer will say, lead on, O King Eternal. And their every prayer, every night, is to say, oh, he leadeth me. Oh, blessed thought. Oh, words with heavenly comfort, fraud. And Lord, as we head forward into the things that the devil has waiting for us outside of this prayer, and we know he's not going to wait till tomorrow morning, he's going to start tonight. All we pray is that we would live for the audience of one. That you would teach us the science of following Jesus. To focus upon him, what he has done and what he does and what he continues to do. And to be imitators of him. That's what we want in our hearts, Lord. We know that you can give it to us. We know that you promised to do it. And so we're believing it, not because we feel it. Not because something warm has come upon our minds up here in this prayer at this altar. We're believing it because simply the word says it is so. And Father, that each one here at this altar knows that they're going to go back to their seat. They're going to go back to their hotel room. They're going to go back to their homes justified. Because all we're here to pray is God be merciful to me, a sinner. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. And we offer it up from our hearts in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.